Good morning to each of you. Glad you're here. Um, so the first thing I want to say is um, I am sorry that I did not observe the calendar better. And uh, I have uh, a council sermon here in communion next Sunday, and this does not... This does not work well at all for Mother's Day and uh, and graduation Saturday and communion Sunday. Uh, so all I can say is uh, I'll try to be more attentive in the future. I want to thank uh, Paul for what he read. Um, I guess I'll say, uh, just say that I think mothers um, uh, I think they have a lot of joy it's my observation in certain things but carry quite a bit of uh, weight in terms of work and in terms of concerns and uh, yeah, blessings. Blessings on the mothers and all the ladies. So the sermon this morning is taken from Luke 22 and 23, but primarily 22. And it's a long passage. And um, it's the last, it's the last, Christ uh instituting the Last Supper, having the Last Supper with the Lord's Supper, uh, with his disciples prior to his crucifixion, to his trial, prior to the trial. Um, So the question, what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper and who is qualified to partake? So I have a question to start with, and you don't have to raise your hand. Uh, have you ever wished not to participate in communion because you were afraid you were unqualified and might eat unworthily? So uh, Luke 22 and 23, um, I would say, is one of the most uh, intense and Um, deeply moving passages in the scripture. There's quite a bit of struggle and pain, confusion, failure, and victory in this passage. Uh, So what does this passage teach us about the purpose of the Lord's Supper? What does it teach us about Jesus' attitude towards the Twelve? And I've never really thought about that question until recently, the last couple months. And, And I think I feel a little surprised at myself this morning, um, at my thoughts about his attitude towards the Twelve. Uh, I, I think surprised because I haven't really thought about this that much before. Um, 
So the reason I'm asking this question, what, what did Jesus think about the 12, and what, what do you think when communion time comes, um, is that all, at almost every communion that I've had any responsibility in for, the, for 50 years, it's been 50 years, every communion, I hear people who are terribly distressed. Uh, they are distressed about their spiritual condition. They're distressed about whether they're qualified. They're distressed about whether, yes, they tried to evaluate and they did try to repent of a few things, but they don't know if they repented of enough things. And what if they didn't think about some things that the Lord wants them to think about? And this, pardon my expression, but drives people crazy. People get so distraught. And, and uh, I've heard people say they don't like communion. They wish we could get rid of it. And um, my next comment, I don't mean at all in any way a criticism about, about this or of anybody. Uh, but it just highlights the concern that, uh, that when we went here from two communions a year to four, I heard a few people saying they don't want it to be four because it just doubles the amount of times that they are distraught about communion. And I feel really bad about that. I feel sad about it. I, it bothers me a lot to realize that, that we, some of us, I don't know how many, um, feel so anxious about this event and can't, we feel confused and anxious about the state we're in and uh, whether it's okay to commune. Um, so, Yeah, sometimes I'm doing things and I don't, yes, I do have it. I'm not prepared, okay? So you have an outline on the back of your uh, bulletin. And uh, so Luke 22, 14 and 15, uh, Jesus desired to eat with the disciples, so... What we have here is Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles gathered, the disciples gathered around him. And he said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So uh, just comment about, about Passover historically. Uh, according to Exodus 12, the Passover was celebrated in family units by close kin, intimate friends. And Jesus is initiating this meal with his closest followers. And his words, I have eagerly desired, express intense longing. I'm not sure if we can uh, appreciate uh, what that might mean. Uh, 
Maybe you need to think about times when you have intensely desired something, like it consumed your faculties, your thoughts, your feelings. Intense longing. To share this experience with them, I'm not sure if we can understand why he would want to do that. But this is what he said. Uh, so he wanted to be with them. He wanted them to be with him in this time of trial uh, to participate in this event that uh, was part of their, I'll use this word, tradition, uh, familiar to all of them, and he wants to do it with them because they are close to him. Uh, he longs to be present with his disciples. So here's, here's one reflection I have in this, is that I, I believe we could say the same is true today, that Jesus longs to be present with us, and he longs to be present uh, when we partake of the bread and cup. Uh, this, this is his longing to be present with us, and he's present with us all the time, but in this event, this is what he wanted, intense longing to be present with him. So Jesus is not uh, a helpless victim here. He's the initiator. He, he's got this intense longing, and he is initiating, he's taking a positive action. He's, uh, he's being a man's man. He's being a leader. There are things that need to happen, and he's responsible for them, and he takes initiative in them. So he arranged where they would meet. Just several examples of this. In the previous verses, Jesus sent Peter and John to arrange a place, and he gave them specific instructions about preparing for the Passover. And um, they asked Jesus, where do you want us to make preparation for it? And Jesus gave them specific instructions to look for a man carrying a jar of water. They should follow him into the house. And they should ask the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And they went and they found everything exactly as he had predicted. He also initiated not only the supper, but he initiated gathering around the table. He went first, he sat down like, gather around here, and so the 12 men gathered there with him, followed his lead. Uh, he, took, he took initiative in what, would, what happened there and how it happened, when it happened. Uh, he took initiative after the meal was over. Uh, 
As I, I didn't look this up, but as I remember, he, I think they sang a song before they left. That, that would have been interesting to listen to, Derry. And um, they sang a song, and then he said, let us be going. And they got up and went. And then at the trial, I'd never noticed this before, but he, he answered, sometimes he didn't answer the questions that he was asked, but sometimes he answered them and actually gave them more than they asked for, which was a way that it moved the trial forward. It did not stall it. It moved it forward to what he knew was coming. Now, the third thing I have here, Jesus interprets the character of the meal, this verses 16 to 20. He interprets the character of the meal, the purpose of the meal, as a covenant-making event. So during the Passover feast, the Jewish householder took bread in his hand and said, This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. And uh, by his words, Jesus changed the significance and emphasis of the feast from looking back to the redemption from Egypt to looking forward in faith in the redemption from sin accomplished by Jesus' death and resurrection. So his death and resurrection is the new covenant. There's a covenant here that God is making that he will, by his death and resurrection, redeem, deliver people from sin in the same way that God delivered the people from bondage in Egypt. Uh, Luke twenty-two seventeen says, Jesus took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and share it among yourselves. And in verse 20, Jesus says, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so it's clear that uh, Jesus is connecting uh, the Old Testament Passover with the breaking of his own body and the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of sins. The bread that Jesus broke and gave to them and the cup he poured out and gave to them, they both represented his own body that would be broken for them and his own blood that would be spilled for them. And in the giving of his body and blood, Jesus is sealing the New Testament or the New Covenant. And what is this covenant? It's a covenant Jesus is making with every person who is um, unable to save himself, who is unworthy to sit at the table with him, who is unworthy to partake. He cannot make himself valuable enough, holy enough by himself in his own strength to, to uh, have fellowship with Jesus or to be at the table with him. The covenant he is making is that his own body and blood offered freely qualifies the 
outsider, uh, those with no status and no honor who have no right to be there except that they are in a relationship with Jesus. They are his friend. They belong to him. And that's what qualifies them. Now, the next section that I want to talk about is the part that kind of um, has me a little bit maybe shocked. Maybe I'll shock you. I don't mean to, but I'm just admitting. When I saw this and thought about it, it, it uh, I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. So the 12 at the table with him do fit this category of unqualified. So the 12 disciples were unqualified to eat with Jesus. So I, several examples here. Judas. Uh, immediately after Jesus says he desires to eat with them and that this is the purpose of what's coming up, what's happening, what's going to happen, uh, he talks about Judas without naming, naming him. So this unqualified is expressed immediately in relation to Judas. When Jesus says, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to debate among themselves which one of them it was who was going to do this. Now, this, this is astounding to me that these men have been together two and a half years or however long, and they do not know each other well enough to know that they have this person among them who is a devious traitor, a selfish, self-serving traitor. And they don't know this. Not a single one of them know it except Jesus. Now, I guess I'll pause here and say um, the thought that Jesus would eat the, the supper, last supper, Passover with Judas, I think that violates everything that I think about communion. I'm sorry, uh, but it does. Okay, and I think I grew up and have thought this way for many years that Judas probably wasn't there. That's how I solved this problem in my mind. Do you understand what I'm saying? It didn't seem to add up right. So I tried to think, well, he probably wasn't there. But the problem is he was there. So it's not going to help me, Mr. Milan. <laughs> it doesn't help to try to convince myself of something that's not scripturally true. So he was there. Okay, Judas. But then immediately we have this problem with the other 11. Uh, so first they are debating about Judas, well, not Judas, but which one of us it might be. And then they, they, don't, they can't hardly get over which of us is the worst then they start talking about which of them is the best. 
Who's the greatest? Who's the best? And um, they're, they're disputing this among themselves. And, and so Jesus speaks to that and says that the kings of the Gentiles domineer over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way for you. Rather, the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Uh, Meaning, I'm giving you an example of, of a servant leader and here you are talking in this, which they didn't understand, this stressful, difficult time when I'm going to give my life. You're sitting here talking about who's the greatest one. So um, we, we can be distraught about Judas. I mean, that's really bad. It's the worst, you know. But then uh, maybe Jesus was just as distraught about the eleven who uh, go from wondering who's the worst among us that would do this to wondering who's the best. And uh, <clears throat> maybe that's just how we are. You know, our minds have to be occupied with something, and we just go from one thing to another, and it's hard to stop. I can be that way. Probably all of us can. But what it says is that uh, none of them were being very... Uh, spiritually mature here. None of them except Jesus. Not, not, a, not a one of them was able to act like a spiritually and emotionally mature adult. I'm not trying to be critical, I'm just saying. And none of them really were qualified to eat with Jesus at the table. Not a one. Then immediately, apparently with no break, in verses 31 to 38, Jesus turns to Peter and tells Peter that Satan has desired to sift or winnow you. And the imagery is of chaff and wheat, and uh, you get rid of the chaff and keep the wheat, and uh, suggesting that Satan's goal is to find Peter's chaff. He's going to test him and try to find his weakness. And uh, Jesus tells Peter, I prayed for you that your faith fails not. And Peter responds, probably as most of us would respond, and he says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But of course, Jesus knew, and we all know now, that that's not what he did. He did, he did in the end of life, but not here. Um, now, uh, Derek's, um, Derek's emphasis in the opening songs, I don't know if he knew what I was preaching or not. Did you know? Okay, thank you. It really fits this theme of, of uh, the willingness to sacrifice and to give up what you hold dear and think is valuable for the sake of doing the thing that I know, you know, Jesus knew is the right thing to do. 
And of course, Peter knew what was the right thing to do too. But he didn't do it. But I would say this, that uh, Peter, uh, Jesus is pray, was praying for Peter and Jesus prays for us. He intercedes for us. And Peter didn't always live this way. He did improve. He did improve. And I want to say that uh, gives each of us hope that we can change. And so there's hope for you and me. Then now they're in the garden in verses 39 to 46, and Jesus prays for the, he, he prays while the disciples sleep. He tells them to pray that you do not come into temptation. But they slept, and while they slept, he prayed. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. That's what it says. So this scene, I believe, presents probably more than any other scene in the whole story. The deep struggle between Satan and Jesus and tells us the source of Jesus' victory. And so he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So while the disciples slept, Jesus cast himself on the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. Uh, and I think, uh, I think, I'm not sure which account it is, but I, I believe that uh, there's the comment made that the disciples were sleeping because of uh, intense, maybe the word is agony. Uh, in other words, they were overwhelmed with the circumstances, the situation, exhausted, uh, probably emotionally, uh, confused, didn't know what was going on. So scripture attributes that to them sleeping. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not being critical here. Uh, to make the connection, it's maybe a little bit like we can be sometimes when life is too big and we don't know what to do, and so we just go take a nap. I've done that sometimes, maybe you have. It's not a sin, but here uh, Jesus wanted their help, and they disappeared. Then verses 64 and 65, Peter and Jesus are at the high priest's mansion. Peter denies Jesus here, so the captors, they came uh, there to the garden, and they seized Jesus, and they led him away, and Peter followed at a distance. Sometimes there are phrases, sentences in Scripture that if, if you notice them, they, they are, they summarize the whole account 
like, like I think when Jesus said, uh, let us be going. No, when Judas left, when Judas left them at the supper, I think the scripture says, and Judas went out and it was night. Okay? That says it, doesn't it? Jesus went out, I mean, Judas went out and it was night. And uh, and here it says that Peter followed far behind. Okay, that, that is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. It's part of what was going on for him that he ended up denying Jesus. And then he denied Christ these three times, and then Jesus looked at him, and the uh, rooster crowed, and Jesus went out and wept bitterly. So uh, Peter had his troubles. So just to say, uh, considering their failures, how could Jesus eat with the twelve? Eating with them signified belonging, intimate belonging. He's with them. They are with him. He's chosen them. He wants them to be with him. He needs them. And they belong together. They belong together because they belong to Jesus. They belong together because he chose them. He called them. And they are his followers. And he called them his friends. Uh, But they are imperfect. Not very, let's say, emotionally and spiritually mature. They need to grow. Uh, So the astounding thing is, how could they possibly have been qualified to partake? And this is just me, my mind, working on this. So, now let's go to 1 Corinthians 11, um, 25 to 29. Uh, I say, I think many of us interpret this wrongly, or we give it the wrong emphasis. So in my conversations with people over the years, uh, as I said before, people can be so frightened about communion, and they're trying to figure out if they're qualified, and uh, trying to make sure they don't eat unworthily. And uh, so here's what it says, beginning verse 25. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a person must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body. So, the context... Um, well, first of all, I think I want to say uh, worthiness is not based on our ability 
to live a sinless life or to make perfect... uh, I'm trying to be careful. It's not based on living a sinless life. And it's not based on uh, perfect, being able to perfectly evaluate uh, whether I have some sin. And it's not based on being able to perfectly repent. Because I don't think, I do not believe that we have, that we have the, uh, can, it's not humanly possible to perfect any of these things. Now, I feel like I need to hasten to say that does not mean that we shouldn't care about it or that we should not do what this instructs. But what I'm trying to speak to is the pressure people feel to perfect all of this. So the context for Paul's instructions about communion is their dividing, the fact that they divided into factions, and the factions seem to have to do with those who have a lot to eat and those who don't have much or anything. So they have a, they have a um, love feast, I'll call it that. They had a love feast at the beginning before the Lord's Supper. And, and those who came with a lot ate a lot. Those who came with little or nothing ate nothing. And it happened that way because the people who had a lot did not share with those who had little. So Paul speaks to that and he says it's not right. There is something wrong. This is not, this does not express the, um, it does not express the meaning of the Lord's Supper. The meaning of the Lord's Supper is that Jesus gave his body and blood and died for other people. And here you are, and you come, and all you're concerned about is yourself. And you're being a glutton. And you don't care. You don't care about other people who are there. You don't share what you have with them. That's wrong. It's sin. So this this is the context. And so he condemned their attitudes and actions and reminded them of the true meaning and purpose of the Lord's Supper. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we remember what Jesus has done to deliver us from sin. And we repent of known sin as we are able to, as we are able to. And we remember that he is coming again and we renew our commitment to love and follow Jesus. Paul is saying that we should should partake of the Lord's Supper thoughtfully because we are proclaiming We are proclaiming that Jesus died to deliver us from our sins. Whatever our sins are, if it is being selfish at the love feast, 
Paul is saying, repent of that and change. So since we are proclaiming that Jesus died for our sins, we should examine ourselves and discern whether we are guilty of the kinds of sins the Corinthians were guilty of. It's just an example. The problem of selfish eating and excluding some. And we should discern whether we are receiving, whether we're understanding and receiving the value of the broken body and of Christ and the shed blood of Christ for our known sins and receive his forgiveness. The passage teaches that we, are, that we eat unworthily when we do not properly discern our sin and the value of the Lord's broken body and shed blood in relation to our sin. And, and I think one of the difficulties I've observed over the years is that people tend to be more aware of and discerning of their human frailties, weaknesses, sins. They, they tend to be more aware of that than they are aware of what Jesus offers them to free them to give them forgiveness. So we can, we can get focused on our failures and not remember we could be forgiven. We could repent. The passage is not teaching that we can make ourselves worthy by perfecting ourselves or even perfecting our repentance of known sin. <clears throat> we are called to do that. We're called to do those things. But this isn't perfecting them. We are always dependent on the grace and mercy of God extended to us in the death and resurrection of Christ. So my last statement, my desire for each of us is that we will each know that Jesus greatly desires to participate in our hearts, uh, to participate with us in communion, and he desires to participate with us at the Lord's table and that we will allow the Holy Spirit to clarify in our hearts anything we need to repent of and that we be able to receive the value of the Lord's broken body and shed blood and, and be able to rest in the work of Jesus um, in this process of discernment of ourselves and of Jesus and the value of his death and resurrection. And, and I wish uh, for each of us to be able to come to communion uh, with grateful, and I'm going to use the word joyful, hearts. Because I think that's how Jesus wants to come and will come, and that's how he wants us to come and meet him there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for who you are, who you were with those 12, and throughout the trial and your crucifixion. And thank you for who you are this day 
alive and by your spirit present in our hearts to speak to us, to reveal ourselves to us and to reveal yourself to us. And I pray that you would bless each one here today, this week, uh, with your presence and your work uh, to give discernment, to reveal, to reveal to each of us um, whatever you'd like to say to us that you would like for us to repent of. And, and I pray that you will be present to, to reveal to us whatever you want us to know about who you are and who you want to be for us in, in forgiving, in forgiving us. And uh, so meet us and commune with us and forgive us and qualify us and encourage us. And thank you. Amen.